Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is a reasonably short show, with only one cinematic film to review in this particular episode. And my home viewing has been somewhat hampered and somewhat pushed to the side by the fact this week I have been desperately trying to finish my Raw Footage Awards show. Severely late in the year, but the recording is done. I now have to trawl through and go through the editing process. But I've been spending a lot of time doing that and also something else, which I will be talking about at the end of the show. So I haven't had an awful lot of time to watch films. But in this episode, we will be reviewing the cinematic film Downton Abbey, A New Era. I also found time to review the streaming film May Day. And I finally got around to Judd Apatow's new film on Netflix, The Bubble. And since I couldn't resist, I also reviewed another Netflix film, Bubble an anime with a very complex sci-fi premise. So, yes, I will be reviewing The Bubble and Bubble in the same episode. But, yes, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Downton Abbey A New Era is the second film adaptation of the incredibly successful, incredibly long-running TV show Downton Abbey. This particular film version is directed by Simon Curtis, who is mostly known as a theatre director, but does have a reasonably impressive CV as a film director. He directed the excellent My Week with Marilyn, as well as Women in Gold, Goodbye Christopher Robin, and The Art of Racing in the Rain, which sticks out like a sore thumb amongst this rather British, rather proper filmography. The Art of Racing in the Rain is a romantic drama narrated by a dog. What Simon Curtis was doing directing that, I'm not sure. And now he is directing this second film adaptation of Downton Abbey. And while, yes, he is a respected director of safe, very British films, I think perhaps the most relevant thing as to why he got this particular gig is that Simon Curtis is married to Elizabeth McGovern, a.k.a. Lady Grantham. So, why not get a respected director who happens to be married to one of the main cast members? But anyway, he does a decent enough job, and he's done a decent enough job of his previous films as well. In the chronology of Downton Abbey, we have reached 1929. And there are two strands going on side by side in this film. In one plot, the Dowager Duchess of Grantham, as played by Maggie Smith, unexpectedly inherits a French villa from a man she spent a week with about 50 years earlier. Unsure as to where this generous gift came from and the mysterious background of the Dowager Countess, about half the cast go off to the south of France and explore this French villa. Meanwhile, back at Downton, 
a film production is invading this old country house using the elegant backdrop of Downton Abbey for a silent film called The Gambler, and reluctantly, Lady Mary, as played by Michelle Dockery, accepts this film crew invading her home for the sake of the large paycheck, which will be used to fix the desperately leaking roof. And while this film production is going on, she is mildly flirting with the director of this silent movie played by Hugh Dancy because Michelle Dockery's husband from the TV series Matthew Good does not appear in this film and he only appeared very very briefly in the other film as well so yeah Matthew Good seems to be completely absent from Downton Abbey nowadays and I'm not sure that's a bad thing because I never quite bought his relationship to Lady Mary but Anyway, Matthew Good is not in this film, which gives an opportunity for Michelle Dockery to mildly flirt with the film director Hugh Dancy. But they are making a silent movie, and the era of the talkies is just on the cusp of starting. So that throws complicated elements into the story as well as the two stars of this film the genteel englishman played by dominic west who happens to be gay and therefore starts flirting with barrow the gay butler as played by robert james collier and the starlet of this film played by laura haddock who despite looking glamorous is the daughter of an East End market trader, and is very rude, very entitled, and speaks with a broad East London accent. And she knows that her career is essentially over once the talkies take off, so she's lashing out. So lots of stuff going on in this film, and extending the mythology of Downton Abbey into the future. So, weirdly, the one film that really, really came to mind when I was watching Downton Abbey, A New Era, is Singing in the Rain. This is very much a film about the transition between silent cinema and the talkies, with the beautiful starlet whose voice is not going to give her a long career in talking cinema. The studio system getting in the way of art, albeit this is the British or English studio system, the ways you need to work in order to survive in the sound area. I mean, there's a very, very telling scene and a deliberately telling scene where this handsome director, Hugh Dancy, invites Lady Mary Michelle Dockery into Thursk, the nearest town, to go to the cinema one evening. I mean, We've got some time to kill. Why don't we go to the cinema? And I'll show you why Laura Haddock is such a star. And they go to the first cinema and there's lines around the block because it is playing the first talkie that was ever played in the UK, a film called The Terror. And there's lines around the block and they go to the silent cinema, which is the one that Laura Haddock's film is playing at. And they're basically the only people in the auditorium. I mean, it's a perfect metaphor and and arguably perhaps too perfect a metaphor for the transition between silent movies and talkies. And ostentatiously earlier in the film, there's a reference to Abel Gans's Napoleon. So this is a film which knows its cinema and knows the history of cinema and also approaches the history of acting. I mean, I made this note before I knew that Simon Curtis was the director of this film, but it also kind of reminded me of My Week with Marilyn, Simon Curtis's film from 2011, with Kenneth Branagh and Michelle Williams, brilliant in that film. But My Week with Marilyn, one of the things it is about is the difference between being an actor 
and being a movie star. And I think that is something which comes through in this film as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's got lots of stuff about the golden era of Hollywood or, you know, the golden era of the British film industry, at least. And seeing how films would have been made in the 1920s in England is very interesting. And when you combine that with the plots going on in the south of France, with Lord and Lady Grantham and Lady Edith and various other people going down to the south of France to visit this villa, which has been inherited by Maggie Smith, and she is intending to give to one of her grandchildren, no, great-grandchildren, actually, there starts to be suspicions that there's a direct biological reason why Maggie Smith has been given this villa by this mysterious French Marquis. Maggie Smith, who, due to ill health, is back in Britain, the way she plays it, always giving a little bit less information than you would ideally like, showing a little less honesty than you would ideally like, covering up to some degree her past, her possibly shameful past, but always doing it in that whip-crack-smart way that Maggie Smith is always doing. This, I think, is a perfect epitaph for Maggie Smith, one of her most recognisable recent roles, and this is a brilliant way to sign off her film career, should the worst happen. I mean, with the best will in the world, Maggie Smith is 87 years old, so there is a not unreasonable chance that this will be her last film, albeit apparently she's working on a biopic of the last surviving woman who had anything to do with the Nazis. This was a woman who was Joseph Goebbels' personal secretary and lived until she was 105 years old. And later in her life did talk openly about her experiences around the Nazi camp. And yeah, that sounds fascinating. It's apparently a script written by Christopher Hampton, the co-writer and translator of Florenzella's The Father. So. That sounds like a really, really fascinating film, and I hope that does come to fruition. But should the worst happen, and this be Maggie Smith's last film role, this would be a perfect, perfect send-off. Because, in a lot of ways, this is about the end of an era, as was the, the last film version of Downton Abbey. I described that in my review, which I did refresh myself, I did listen to again. I referred to that as a film about the end of an era, but that is definitely true here because this is about the end of the silent movie era and the start of the talkie era. It's to some degree a film about the end of the landed gentry era and a more comprehensive, a more universal approach to life which is coming, you know, the Roaring Twenties, and everybody knows that we're only about five or so years away from Hitler. So this is the end of an era. And as far as the cast and the protagonists of Downton Abbey go, it also seems to be an end of an era there as well, because there are multiple characters in this film, multiple major characters in this film, who seemingly won't be back for any more Downton Abbey. If indeed there is a third film, it seems unlikely that several of the major characters will be participating. And God knows what's going to happen to Matthew Good. But yeah, I mean, I think this is that rarest of things. The follow-up to a film, which I think is actually better than the original. The original film, Downton Abbey, I wasn't hugely impressed with. I think there was unnecessarily convoluted subplots about Irish nationalism and the general strike of 1927 and 
there was too much and I don't think it quite works. It, I think Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey, and not insignificantly the feature film Gosford Park, he wrote that for Robert Altman, also co-starring Maggie Smith. But yeah, what Julian Fellows did with the first film version is well, we're on the big screen, so I, so I need to make everything bigger. I mean, let's have a plot to assassinate the king. Let's have Irish nationalism. Let's have talk about revolution and communism and the general strike. And it's like, no, you don't actually need all that. You just need the story. You just need the characters. And that's basically what we have here. We have a typical episode or few episodes or few plot strands of Downton Abbey just on the big screen and that's all we need and when you have this really interesting insight into the history of hollywood which is something i'm very much a fan of you have an extra string to your bow and the ways those things are discussed and the things that come up are really really well done so yes this is a better film than the first downson abbey film but it's a very genteel, very British film, which we are so good at, and it works. So for me, Downton Abbey, A New Era, does exactly what it's supposed to do. It does it very well, and it is, for me, a pretty high meh. Home Movies Mayday is a film that is available through streaming platforms and is the debut for writer-director Karen Sinor. It follows Grace Van Patten, who is a young woman working a menial job at a hotel. Seemingly, she's sleeping in her car, and she is low girl on the totem pole. She is constantly harassed and or assaulted by her immediate boss, and she's miserable about it. Her only support is the seemingly nice guy who works in the hotel, played by Theodore Pellerin, and during the course of a wedding where the bride of this party, Mia Goth, looks incredibly unhappy to be there and desperate to leave, a particularly bad interaction happens by her immediate boss Frano Maskovic this film was entirely shot in Croatia presumably because it was cheap to film there but anyway after a particularly nasty interaction with Frano Maskovic Grace Van Patten is in a very very dark place and seemingly dies and wakes up in a fantasy land, on a beach-type fantasy land, where she is recruited by Mia Goth to be part of a group of women who are fighting back in an ongoing and seemingly unwinnable war. Grace Van Passen joins Mia Goth and her two subordinates, Socko and Havana Rose Liu, and uses a beached U-boat to send out radio distress signals, maydays, in order to attract the attention of the male combatants out there in this war. But instead of pointing them in the direction of where they actually are, they instead direct them into storms. So these boats out there sink. Essentially, these are modern-day sirens in this unwinnable war on this coastline. And eventually, Grace Van Patten becomes more and more involved in these misandrist fantasies and eventually is picking off soldiers with a sniper rifle with total impunity. But gradually she starts to realise that Mia Goth is perhaps not the best influence and wants to go home. And the only person who can possibly help her is a slightly older woman 
also on this coastline, played by Juliette Lewis, who in the quote-unquote real world we've already seen as a toilet attendant. So can Grace Van Passen escape the charismatic leadership of Mia Goth? Can she live with the men she has mercilessly mown down? And can she fight back in however small a way against the patriarchy? This is a film which I think has a great deal of potential, and that potential is not always fully carried out. The idea that being a woman is being a participant in an unending and unwinnable war against man and using the tropes and the mechanisms and the costumes of the war movie in order to portray that, that's a really, really good idea. And having it set in this world which is deliberately very dreamlike, is deliberately fantastical, Grace Van Patten automatically assumes when she arrives on this coastline that she is dead. And a very telling line of dialogue, Mia Goth being the mentor to this new arrival on this coastline, saying, girls are better off dead, because you don't have to deal with the bullshit of man. And there are hints here and there that all four of these women, in five if you include Juliette Lewis, have been badly mistreated by man in the quote-unquote real world. So they are perfectly willing to live in this fantasy land where their sole purpose is to kill man. I mean, yes, they're all in uniforms, they're all military combatants, but they're all men, and therefore they all deserve to die. And Mia Goth's attitude of all men must pay, all men must die, it becomes such a rigid mantra that Grace Van Passen eventually realises, you know, actually, maybe I don't have this utter, utter hatred for man, this misandry that Mia Goth does. Maybe I want to go home, even despite the fact that it's going to be very, very hard and I've still got this sexual predator for an immediate boss in this rundown hotel. But maybe it's worth it. Maybe I can find a way to make things better, particularly since Theodore Pellerin seems like a decent guy. I mean, he seems to have a crush on Grace Van Patten. He's willing to help. He's willing to support her. And that may be could be enough in order to make life better. So maybe I do want to go back. And that is, of course, roundly rejected by Mia Goth because you know, the battle is ongoing, the battle must be won. Here, we can win. And in the real world, we can't. And having all this play out, there's some really, really good stuff here, but... I do think this is unfocused. I think Karen Sinor had several really, really good ideas. You know, the idea that it is a constant battle. I mean, in the words of Pat Benatar. But having that idea of being in a constant state of war against man, that's a good idea. The idea that entering this fantasy world and living out your fantasies, being powerful in this fantasy world. I mean, I found very, very strong parallels to the TV show Life on Mars, and I suppose by extension the TV show Ashes to Ashes. The idea that we are in this fantasy world and we are playing out the ways things happen and the way things should be rather than the way things are very strong parallels as far as I'm concerned to life on Mars. Actually, I suppose that's a, a spoiler for a TV show that's 15 years old now. But anyway, there are some really, really good ideas here, but they don't particularly cohere very well. I think the ways that Grace Van Patten interacts with the other two women in this beached U-boat, Socco, the French singer, 
and occasional actress, and Havana Rose Liu, who has suddenly been showing up in a lot of stuff recently. I still have to get to her playing a final girl in the thriller No Exit, and she was recently in The Sky is Everywhere as well. So yeah, Havana Rose Liu suddenly seems to have become a big deal in Hollywood. But yeah, the ways those interactions go out, when you think about it, when the solution to this film is revealed, if there is very much of a solution, which honestly there isn't, and that, again, is a little bit of a problem. I think it's a little too dreamlike for its own good. But when the solution is revealed, it doesn't quite make sense why and how Socko and Havana Rose Liu are actually there, because they don't have parallels in the real world in this wedding that Grace Van Patten as the waitress is being assaulted at. I mean, Mia Goth is the bride and Juliette Lewis is the toilet attendant, but Socko and Havana Rose Liu aren't in that wedding party. So why are they in this fantasy world? And having these metaphors, these fantasies going on side by side with seemingly some genuine trauma, and thankfully we don't actually see on screen any trauma, but it's heavily, heavily implied. But I struggle to connect it all together. And yes, you can argue that it's a dreamlike film. It's not supposed to make complete sense. But I think Karen Sonor, as writer-director, could have done a better job of cohering it a little bit more. And it might have been a stronger product, because there are some great ideas here, some great images, but I don't think they necessarily come together particularly well. I think there is a massive amount of potential here, but it's not fully executed. And ultimately, I was a tiny bit frustrated with Mayday. I think the acting, particularly from Mia Goth and Grace Van Patten, is excellent. I mean, Mia Goth seems to have had a globe-trotting couple of years. I mean, she's spent time in Croatia filming this, and she's spent time in New Zealand filming Ty West's film X, and the prequel, which apparently she filmed back-to-back with X. So yeah, I'm not sure how much time Mia Goth has spent in the States recently. But yeah, Mia Goth is excellent here, as indeed she is in X, even though, again, I didn't particularly like X as a movie, but Mia Goth is very good in it. So yeah, tiny bit frustrating, tiny bit unfocused, but in general, I think Mayday is a decent film with a decent agenda And the agenda is reasonably well executed, but could have been better. So for me, Mayday, available through streaming platforms, is a solid meh. Netflix and chill. The Bubble is the latest film by writer-director Judd Apatow, who joins the long list of directors who have taken the Netflix dollar. And this film is co-written by Pam Brady, who has a long history with the South Park crew. She is credited as co-writer in two pivotal moments in South Park history. Alongside Trey Parker and Matt Stone, she is the credited co-writer of the Gnomes episode, and also South Park Bigger, Longer and Uncut. And she has done various other things throughout the years, including the surrealist sitcom Miss Dynamite. So Pam Brady is a respected writer, and Judd Apatow is a respected writer and director. And for this latest film, they are doing a comedy film which is loosely inspired by the filming of Jurassic World Dominion. Apparently there were enough stories coming out of the set of Jurassic World Dominion within Hollywood circles that it was the source of gossip and this comedy film has been made about it. As the global pandemic starts, a group of actors are secluded in an English country house hotel near to a studio 
But because of the global pandemic, they are essentially in lockdown. And during the filming of this film, they basically start going stir-crazy. And they're already a chaotic bunch of characters anyway. Karen Gillan is an actress who has ideas above her station and has reluctantly been persuaded to rejoin the franchise which made her famous. David Duchovny and Leslie Mann are a couple who used to be married, now kind of hate each other, but in close proximity, locked up together, they rekindle their relationship, which is probably a bad idea. Pedro Pascal is an actor who is very much into method acting, which is annoying, and he's also got something of a drug problem, which is also kind of annoying, and he is desperate to hook up with the attractive receptionist, played by Maria Bakalova from Borat. Keegan-Michael Key is an actor who has started to see the shutters coming down on his acting career, so he's essentially trying to start his own cult and is constantly trying to get the other actors to join him in this cult. And the other member of the cast is the new introduction to this sixth film in this big franchise they're filming, Iris Apatow, who is the daughter of Judd Apatow and Leslie Mann. But she has only been added to the cast because she's a huge star on TikTok. She knows nothing about the film industry. She knows nothing about her co-stars. She's just doing what her mother tells her to do, her mother being across the world. So she doesn't have a clue what's going on, but she's young and she's popular on TikTok, so she's in this blockbuster movie. And trying to keep all this together is the producer of the film, Peter Serafimowicz, and the director of the film, Fred Armisen, who got a successful indie film into Sundance and has now been shoved into this big blockbuster where he has no actual power, he has no actual talent, he just does what the corporate machine tells him to do. And it should be pointed out that the director of Jurassic World Dominion is Colin Trevorrow, who made the rather good, actually, two-handed indie sci-fi film Safety Not Guaranteed, and then was immediately given Jurassic World. So, yeah, that's not too difficult to work out where that's coming from. So, can these people survive being locked up in a house together for months on end? Can this film actually get made? And do we care if this film actually gets made? with these Hollywood celebrity types. This is the kind of film which doesn't necessarily have a unified theme, a unified approach. It's the kind of film which points at something, says, look at that, isn't it funny? And then, yeah, often it is funny, but... Does it connect to anything around it? Maybe not. I mean, the way that this producer, Peter Serevimowicz, is ruling this set with a rod of iron, insisting that everybody does the work, and he himself is being encouraged in this by the studio head, who only ever appears on Zoom, played by Kate McKinnon. And in the height of the lockdown, at the height of the pandemic, every time... She is on Zoom. She's in different location. At one point, she's in Aspen. At one point, she's on the Italian Riviera. At one point, she's on safari in Africa. You know, the rich can get away with it. Look at that. Isn't it funny? I mean, maybe. We have things like Iris Apatow having no idea what she's even doing. She's just doing everything she's told. There's actually some pretty dark stuff about Karen Gillan starting to stand up for herself and stand up for her fellow actors who are essentially prisoners, albeit in a gilded cage, but they're still prisoners, and she starts standing up for herself. Essentially, she starts trying to unionise. 
and gradually her role in the film gets diminished and diminished. Important lines that she was supposed to say are now being given to this young actress, Iris Apatow, who doesn't know anything of what she's doing. She's basically being blacklisted in the process of filming, and that is actually a rather interesting thing, but isn't explored in the slightest. I mean, I think one of the problems of this film is tone. At certain points, it's a farce. At certain points, it's surreal. At certain points, it's making some genuinely dark comments about the way modern Hollywood works and the way that films like this get produced. There are some genuinely insightful things that this film has to say, but it's surrounded by a mass of crudity and slapstick. And when we do have some genuinely dark stuff, like the fact that Karen Gillan is being essentially blacklisted whilst the film is being shot, one example is a scene where she's supposed to have you know the big line of the scene, but instead it's given to Iris Apatow, and all Karen Gillan has to do is piss herself. That's the kind of level we're working at. But if they played it slightly differently, I think this could have been kind of a Kafka-esque nightmare. You know, I am trapped in this situation. I'm saying things which should be self-evident. But essentially, I'm being gaslit. I'm being persuaded. You know, no, it's, it's perfectly okay. Everything's fine. Even people like David Duchovny are saying, look, let's just get the film finished. It doesn't matter. Actually, it really, really does matter. But no, no, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And David Duchovny is essentially trying to rewrite the film as he's going along because he's been part of this franchise from the beginning. And he feels that it is his duty to make sure this is an important film about the environment and about all this other kind of stuff. And I can't help feeling that's probably how Sam Neill is responded to behind the scenes of Jurassic World. But Karen Gillan is constantly being pushed to the side and with a little bit of a tweak, it could have been a Kafka-esque nightmare, but they never, ever push it far enough. They always go for the silly, they always go for the crude, and some genuine darkness at the centre of this is never, ever pushed far enough. And then, out of the blue, for one moment, it gets pushed way, way too far, I mean, to an absurd degree. I mean, as I've said, this is basically... A pretty standard film, mild humour, mild satire about the Hollywood system. But in one scene, for one moment, one of these actors actually gets maimed during the course of this film. Are we going to deal with that? Are we going to address the fact that the people doing this maiming, and it's implied that they are doing this under the orders of the studio head Kate McKinnon, you know, who is on safari at the time. But Kate McKinnon allowed one of her performers to be maimed for the sake of this film. And are we going to address that? Apparently not. So, yeah, it, it vacillates between not going nearly far enough and going way, way too far. And... It, it's... It's a weird experience, particularly when occasionally Judd Apatow likes to put in how cine-literate he is. There's one sequence which I can only say is a direct reference to David Cronenberg's Videodrome. The way the film ends is also surprisingly cine-literate and addressing a subgenre of arthouse cinema which I'm sure a lot of Judd Apatow movie watchers will not be aware of. And I'm going to say things now, uh, and arguably this will be a spoiler, but quite honestly, I don't feel too bad about giving a mild spoiler for this film. But the conclusion of this film definitively brings to mind the arthouse documentaries Lost in La Mancha, Burden of Dreams, and 
Hearts of Darkness. That is definitely what the ending of this film is referencing. And Judd Apatow basically saying, you know, I've seen all these films, I know my cinema history, but how many people watching The Bubble will be aware of those documentaries? I don't know. And I don't know how to approach this film. I mean, individual moments are funny. Broad humour, I mean, slapstick humour, farcical humour, but humour. The character journey for Karen Gillan is actually really, really impressive. Reluctantly being drawn back to this franchise, this action movie franchise, when her last movie bombed, when this Caucasian actress was portraying a half-Israeli, half-Palestinian character, and that film got something like 4% on Rotten Tomatoes, which, as it is said in dialogue, it's very, very hard to guess a Rotten Tomato score that low. So she's reluctantly come back to this action movie franchise, and as she spends all this time in these COVID conditions, I mean, there's a brilliant montage of her going through quarantine, and also being trapped, essentially, in this hotel as we're going through this ridiculous action movie franchise and she's gradually being pushed to the side, she's gradually being blacklisted. There's some really, really good stuff there. But it's in a movie which doesn't work. If they'd chosen Elaine and stuck to it, if they'd had you know, so like a jet-black comedy about how broken the Hollywood system is, Maybe even something akin to Robert Altman's The Player. Or if they'd just gone full bore slapstick, isn't it funny how Hollywood people react when they're trapped together? If they'd ignored all the Hollywood stuff in the background, that would have been one thing. But by kind of almost maybe trying to do both, it ends up not working. So the bubble for me does have some good moments, most of them provided by Karen Gillan. But overall, it's a pretty weak entry. So for me, the bubble is a low meh. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I really couldn't resist reviewing the other Netflix film, Bubble, which is an anime directed by Tetsuro Naraki, whose career up until this point has mostly been in animated TV shows, particularly Attack on Titan is probably his most recognisable property. But now he's made a movie for Netflix, although apparently Warner Brothers is one of the co-producers of this film, and it also premiered at the Berlin Film Festival. Really? But anyway, Bubble has ended up on Netflix and has a very, very complicated setup which I will try to explain as best I can. At some point in the near future, a rain of bubbles started falling all over the earth. And these bubbles had the effect of affecting gravity in their immediate environment and created a lot of chaos along the way. The worst affected place on the globe by these gravity-affecting bubbles was Tokyo. And after a massive explosion caused by these bubbles at the Tokyo Tower, the entire city of Tokyo was covered by a bubble. And the remaining bubbles inside this dome simply transformed themselves into water. So Tokyo is now a city which is completely abandoned and mostly drowned and covered by this dome bubble. The only people who live inside this bubble, despite the fact that attempts are constantly being made to evict them, are groups of street kids. Orphaned teenagers who spend their time doing something called Tokyo Battle Corps, 
basically parkour using these floating bits of masonry, these floating trains, I mean, the gravity anomalies, which are covering this drowned Tokyo, but racing each other with the prize being all the resources that you need to survive in this isolated environment, things like food and fuel and all these kinds of things. So these essentially feral teenagers are the only residents of Tokyo, apart from one female scientist who is the only person who is still investigating these gravity anomalies because all the best scientists in the world didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. So the only one left is this one woman who is determined to find out what's going on. And she is living with one of these groups of feral teenagers. And amongst these feral teenagers who this scientist is studying is a boy called Hibiki, who is the best at Tokyo Battle Corps. Even before this massive explosion, he had auditory hypersensitivity. He had very, very acute hearing. So he can hear these bubbles and know where they're going to be, and he knows exactly when and how to jump, and he's the very, very best at this parkour competition. But one day he pushes himself too far and starts drowning when he falls into the water and is rescued by a young woman who he calls a mermaid, or you know, the Japanese equivalent of a mermaid, a ninkyo. But this is a strange girl who appears to have come out of nothing. She just manifests, and she apparently can't speak. She doesn't know how human society works. She starts rummaging through all the food and eating things willy-nilly. She doesn't make herself very popular, but she too is very good at this parkour thing. She too can hear the music of the spheres, for want of a better term. And naturally, these two young people form a bond and try and make a relationship work in these very trying circumstances. But eventually we are going to have to deal with these bubbles and this gigantic anomaly, which is still hovering above the Tokyo Tower and is causing all sorts of chaos. So can these two crazy kids make it work in this post-apocalyptic Tokyo? So I think there are two basic intentions, two basic approaches that this film bubble has. And I have no idea which one came first and which one was tacked on later. The first thing that this film is trying to do is have a film essentially about parkour, a film essentially about using these floating bits of rock and these floating trains and whatever and running essentially through the air and having these exciting action scenes, these exciting races, bouncing off floating bits of debris, which is cool. The other thing which I think this film is trying to do is have a direct parallel, almost a remake of The Little Mermaid, but not the Disney version, the original tragic Hans Christian Andersen version of The Little Mermaid. And if you have ever read that, or if you're aware of it, the way that the original Hans Christian Andersen version of The Little Mermaid ends is the mermaid turns into bubbles. And that is what we have here. And all throughout the course of this film, direct references are made to Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. So the filmmakers knew exactly what they were doing, and exactly what approaches we were having. I mean, this is a film about an intense relationship between a boy and a mystical girl. And it's notable that, as is so often the case in this kind of thing, as this girl manifests, she takes on the image of the first thing she sees. And it just so happens that the first image she sees is a rather fan service picture 
of a girl in a Japanese school uniform. So, yeah, wasn't that convenient. But, yeah, I mean, this strange girl who doesn't quite know what it is to be human, but still has a deep and abiding bond with this boy Hibiki. We know where it's going. We know, because they tell us over and over again, that this is going to be a story like Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. And, yeah, that's fine. But having it combined with this idea of parkour through the air, bouncing off bits of floating masonry, it looks cool, but they have to go such a long way in order to set up this rather convoluted pattern. And yeah, it's an awful lot of work to set up this environment. And honestly, to not a huge amount of benefit. It almost comes across a little bit like the 1970s movie The Warriors with all of these different parkour teams having very different uniforms and approaches. It's a little bit Escape from New York, where a desolate and derelict major city is only inhabited by the people who have nowhere else to go. It has all these things, and yet it has to have such a convoluted story in order to set up all these ideas that... In multiple places, there are huge, huge info dumps. Not all of them are actually justified. Some of it would come up naturally later, but we need to make absolutely sure you know what this is. So we are going to sit down for a couple of minutes and explain all the things that happened that we've ended up in this situation. And it does drag. It really does drag. I mean, the pacing of this is off. The focus it has on these relationships and and how they function the melodramas the jealousies the rivalries which go on the fact that this scientist who is studying this particular team there's seems to be a little bit of mutual attraction mutual flirting with an older competitor at this tokyo battle corps who no longer competes Because, interestingly, he's an amputee. And that is surprising progress for a Japanese film, which, I mean, as I was talking about recently, oh, you haven't heard that yet, have you? Me talking about Josie the Tiger and the Fish and Japanese attitudes to disability. But, yeah, one of the characters in this film is an amputee, and that, I think, is decent progress. But... Yeah, there's casual flirting going on between him and the female scientist. There's definite flirting going on between this boy Hibiki and the girl Uta. And Uta means song because she can't speak but only sings when she first shows up. So she's just called Song. And yeah, it's got all those things. It's got the race sequences running over floating objects. It's got the romance. It's got the tragic ideas of Anderson's Little Mermaid. It's got all those things, but it's, in my opinion, a little bit of a mess, quite honestly. I mean, yes, some of the action sequences are great. Some of the ideas are interesting. Despite all the info dumps, I'm still a little bit unclear as to exactly what's been going on by the end of the film. So, yeah, it's it's strange. It has many of the problematic aspects of Japanese animation and not quite enough of the really good aspects for me to fully recommend this, but it's still interesting. I still had an okay time watching it. So for me, Bubble, the anime, as opposed to the Judd Apatow film on Netflix, is a pretty dispassionate, pretty low meh. Coming attractions. It's another week where there's one film out at the cinemas which everybody is running scared from. Quite different from Downton and New Era. 
This week we have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. The latest entry into the MCU, seemingly with Doctor Strange dealing with the aftermath of Spider-Man Far From Home with all the multidimensional stuff that was going on there, and also dealing with the aftermath of the Disney TV show WandaVision. And this leads me on to the fact that without seeing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, I already mildly resent it because I felt the need to watch the TV series WandaVision before I watched Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Don't get me wrong, I actually really enjoyed WandaVision. I think it's a great TV show with lots of parodies of US sitcoms for good reasons. And I was going to watch it at some point anyway, but the fact I felt the need to watch it now before I watched this new Doctor Strange film does annoy me somewhat. But anyway, Doctor Strange dealing with the multiverse and dealing with Scarlet Witch does seem like a good entry into the MCU. So I do want to check that out. And despite the fact that that is almost all the screen times which is in the cinemas I can get to, there is one other cinematic trip I'm planning to make, and that is for the Danish film Wild Man, in which a Danish man, Rasmus Björk, decides that he wants to run away to the wilderness and live as the caveman did in the mountains of Norway. Much to the horror and chagrin of his wife, Sophie Grabal, from the killing. But this man goes into the Norwegian mountains and stumbles across a wounded man who happens to be a drug smuggler. And it looks like a cross between man goes back to nature and we need to run away from these drug dealers who are after us. So, yeah, could be kind of interesting. Reminds me a little bit of the. Sundance film from a few years back, The Boys of Summer, deciding to just live off the grid in the mountains and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that could be fun, and that is on the cinematic list. I've come across a couple of streaming films which I've added to the list. One is an Australian film called A Guide to Dating at the End of the World which is one of those films which was perfectly timed, or arguably was perfectly timed, because looking at it now in 2022, it kind of looks like a COVID film, even though it was produced and released in Australia back in 2019. But anyway, an Australian woman is interacting with somebody, it might even be a blind date kind of situation, and publicly declares that this is the last person I would ever choose to date. But this is the same day that the Large Hadron Collider is put on, and for some reason it creates some kind of black hole, and this young woman in Australia is the last person on Earth, apparently. But eventually, she finds this guy, the man she publicly stated would I would not date if he was the last person of Earth. And, of course, now he is. So, yeah, it's also that TV series, Last Person on Earth, with uh, Kristen Charlotte's Will Arnett, was it? But I only watched a couple of episodes of that. So, yeah, that could well be fun. And there's another micro-budget film, which looks kind of interesting. It's called The Aviary and stars and was apparently also produced by Marlene Ackerman, who I think is a very talented actress. It's about two young women who are running away from a cult and end up in the middle of the New Mexico desert and alone in the wilderness and absolutely paranoid that they are being pursued by the cult leader their minds start to fracture, or at least that seems to be what the aviary is about. And yeah, that sounds interesting. So that has also been added to the list. There's not actually a great deal added to the Netflix list this week. There's one German film which 
looks a little bit interesting. It's called Rumspringer, an Amish in Berlin. Now, Rumspringer is the practice of the Amish community where just before a teenager gets baptised into the Amish way of life and gives up all modern conveniences, they are allowed a short period of time to explore the modern world, to explore the outside world, and decide whether they want to come back. This is something which I think is somewhat misunderstood by the wider world. I mean, there are documentaries in America on you know channels like TLC, reality TV, putting the most prurient attitude and aspect of this Rumspringer idea. You know, Amish gone wild, that kind of thing. I think it's somewhat misunderstood by the wider world. But they've made a film about it and it looks interesting. I might as well add it to the list. But I think possibly one of the bigger releases this coming week is a French film called The Takedown. Which looks like it's basically a French version of Lethal Weapon. A buddy cop movie with two wildly different personalities being put together, but done, by the looks of it, in a very, very action movie way. And the the stars are Omar Sy and Laurent Lafitte, two talented French actors. So, yeah, a version of Lethal Weapon with a much more action-orientated bent, as it appears by the trailer. So, yeah, that has been added to the list on Netflix. Still on the list for Netflix, I still really, really want to get to the Richard Linklater rotoscoped film Apollo Ten and a Half. I wanted to do that this week, but it just ran out of time. I'm still really fascinated by the home invasion movie Windfall and the South African historical thriller about the anti-apartheid movement Silverton Siege. Next time I go to Bristol, which I will need to do in order to watch Wild Man. On the slate is probably the Italian film The Invisible Thread. And I'm getting increasingly curious about the Spanish film Dancing on Glass, which I might also find time to squeeze in. But also released this week onto Netflix is a really strange situation, because on Netflix this week, is the film C For Me, which has already got a streaming release earlier in the year and is basically the reason that I bought myself a subscription to Shudder because it was advertised as being on Shudder, but apparently not on UK Shudder and apparently now it's available on Netflix in the UK. So either way, I don't have to pay for it and C For Me will almost certainly be a high priority going forward when I watch that on Netflix. And still on the streaming platforms, we have the thriller No Exit, starring the aforementioned Havana Rose Liu as a woman stuck in a blizzard and realises that a little girl is being kidnapped in the car park and which of the strangers I am sharing this snowbound cabin with is the kidnapper. There's also the erotic thriller Deep Water, based on a Patricia Highsmith novel, where Anna de Armas is constantly having affairs, basically in front of the nose of her husband, Ben Affleck, and then when these lovers start dying, Ben Affleck is suspected of the crime, so that could be interesting. We also have the low-key spy film, All the Old Knives, in which Chris Pine has to reconnect with an old lover, Tandiwe Newton, to try and uncover whether Tandiwe Newton is a mole in the CIA. And there's also the family-friendly film on the Disney+, Plus, Better Nate Than Ever, about a flamboyant 13-year-old who runs away to New York in order to audition for Lilo and Stitch the Musical. And I think that might even be a musical. So, yeah, and there's some really strange stuff coming up on Disney+. Plus. There's a Chip and Dale movie, which looks bizarre and it's also a film called sneakerella which i think looks kind of interesting as well so 
yeah, Disney Plus is having some increasingly interesting stuff, as well as some bizarre stuff like No Exit. But yeah, I've got plenty of stuff to get to. Oh, and that includes the fact that a documentary I talked about briefly last week, Your Mum and Dad, A Devastating Truth, is actually showing up on BBC Four next week. So yeah, don't need to pay for that one either. It's a Dutch documentarian who is given permission to follow the therapy sessions of a man going through Freudian therapy and then comes to realise that she actually needs to make a film about her own family relationships, the relationship she has with her own mother and her own daughters. So, yeah, that could be interesting. And it's on BBC Four, so I will be checking that out as well. And as well as all that, we have the Raw Footage Awards, which I am working my way through the editing process of. It's all been recorded, and now I need to edit it down from its several hours raw file to something a little bit more manageable. So I'll be working on that. And I also have been distracted somewhat by a new opportunity. An opportunity has arisen which is literally one of my dreams. And fingers crossed, fingers firmly crossed, that the other people who will be making the decisions will see me as a good person to add to the team. That hopefully, fingers crossed, I will be able to talk more openly about that in a couple of weeks' time. But I've been somewhat distracted by what is literally my dream. And a seemingly reasonable chance I will be achieving my dream. So, fingers crossed on that. So, yeah, with that teaser for the future... That brings me to the end of the show, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine the light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>